Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Organised Crime and Drugs in the Netherlands. Okay, good morning, everyone. Uh, at this panel on organised crime in the Netherlands and its containment, my name is Hans Nelen. I'm a professor of criminology at Maastricht University. I'm also the chair of uh, CIROC, the Center for Information and Research on Organized Crime, a network organization in which many universities participate, and also the co-organizer of this great event, this 24 hours. Uh, what we'll try to do in the upcoming uh, 90 minutes is to share with you uh, a number of our impressions on, on ongoing uh, manifestations of organized crime in the Netherlands, but, but particularly we will focus on um, the way we try to deal with that. So how the Dutch are dealing with that. Um, so we will you also give you some preliminary findings of our ongoing research in which the four of us are, are involved in looking at, okay, what is being done in the Netherlands to contain organized crime and what do we see in terms of uh, new initiatives innovative approaches, etc. cetera. Um, what, I, what we will do, I will give you an idea of the program that we have in mind. Um, let me see and try to share the screen with you. I hope that works. Can you see that? I will have a look. Uh, yes, so um, what we would like to do is to um, show to you um, Couple of things. First of all, I will have 10 minutes in setting the scene, what, what I called it, show you both in terms of the phenomenon and approach, the most recent developments. Then uh, Roland Moulin, my colleague from Maastricht University, uh, he will give you an overview also from a more historical perspective. Is this new, what we are trying to do? Or is it old wine in new bottles? That's question mark. Um, so that's his presentation. Afterwards, we will focus a little bit more on the research that I was just referring to. And we, we will take out two aspects which are relevant in the Dutch approach. We will have a specific look at the port of Rotterdam. And of course, such a huge port um, also has uh, provides all kinds of opportunities for criminals to abuse that. How are they dealing with that in the port of Rotterdam? So trying to contain it there. And last but not least, Karen van Wingerde, also a professor of criminology at Erasmus University. Um, she will focus more on public-private partnerships and will illustrate that with a couple of examples as well. What we intend to do is use only 15 minutes. So we have some time left for discussion. If you have a question, you can do it at the end, um, raise your hands uh, virtually uh, or use the chat. So if you have a question, I will have a look as the moderator also at the chat. So if there are interesting questions, probably we cannot uh, deal with them all, but I will try to select some very interesting ones and discuss it with the other panelists. Um, what I would like to do now is just give you a, a brief idea of what's going on in the Netherlands. And if you see this slide, um, and especially the picture here, it's a, a picture of a German magazine our neighbors are quite concerned what's going on in the Netherlands, and not only the Germans, many people are questioning themselves what the hell is going on in the Netherlands. 
For those of you who do not speak German, it says Käse, Cox und Killer. While Killer is clear, the Käse is the cheese and the Cox is related to cocaine, but also to the producing of synthetic drugs in the Netherlands. <clears throat> so one of the, and these questions were raised immediately after the summer because we, we've had some serious recent incident and the most, uh, well, the, the one that, that caused most concern was the killing of a very famous journalist and he's a very famous uh, a Dutch presenter on television, Peter Edevries. And uh, I will not go into detail in, in, in his, the, the background of his liquidation, but that triggered an enormous debate and it showed because allegedly he was killed by organized crime criminals. <clears throat> um, so it triggered a huge debate. Well, what, 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 what is going on here? Have the Dutch become a narco state? And again, we do not have the time to discuss that all in detail here. But um, first of all, of course, if you want to question it, it sounds good. It's a good sound bite. But at the same time, we have to keep in mind, OK, let's try to look at it as nuanced as possible. And then, of course, it all starts with what do you define as narco state? Because the, the first connotation that comes up, of course, is related to uh, states like Mexico, Colombia, you name it. Um, so. If we try to look at it a little bit more in detail, we'll see that, of course, when you look at the process and, 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 and the place that the Netherlands play in, in the drugs industry at large in, in, globally, I think there is reason for serious concern because indeed, when you think about the production of, of cannabis, the production of synthetic drugs, but also in terms of tra trafficking of cocaine, we do play a pivotal role in the world. No doubt about it. Nothing to be proud of, but indeed, and there are a couple of reasons for that. And again, I will not go into detail, uh, but if you think back what the Netherlands, why we are uh, such a welfare state, it's partly based on our culture. We have always been merchants, always been involved in all kinds of trade, including illegitimate trade. So from an historical perspective, you can already come up with a couple of explanations. Of course, we have the logistics, we have this harbor, we have this port in Rotterdam, we have Schiphol Airport, all gateways to Europe, and that is abused by criminals, of course. You can look at demographics, groups of people moved to the Netherlands, migration populations. You can look at our drug policy, much criticized also by the Spiegel here, too lenient, too soft for a couple of years. Again, can be discussed, but as a mixture, as a result, you could argue, hey, we have to some extent, maybe especially when it's related to cannabis and the synthetic drugs market, the Dutch have maybe put a blind eye for a while. I've not looked at what was going on in those markets and now we pay the price to some respect. At the same time, if you look at, for instance, uh, what a narco state also entails, in at least in some definitions, is that legitimate markets uh, become completely monopolized by organized crime, that they invest money in, let's say, construction, transport, you name it, and that the whole market is being controlled by organized crime. There is no scientific research in the Netherlands available that actually finds conclusive evidence for such a monopolization. Um, of course, criminals want to invest their money in all kinds of trade. Uh, the problem is that we do not know that much about that. I would say that's the most important blind spot, the money, where it's going to. But somehow we do not see, at least not in the Netherlands, that actually some specific markets are being controlled by crime. When we look at 
endemic corruption at different levels, <clears throat> strategic levels, when you look at our administrations, when you look at our uh, courts, when you look at our public prosecution services, when you look at the police, indeed, we do have incidents of, of corruption, but not as endemic as we know in some other states, that is that the system as such is fully corrupted. We cannot, there is no reason to believe that's going on in the Netherlands. But I'm not saying this to say, to, to, to say well, it's not such a, such a problem, because indeed it is a problem, especially also in relation to violence. Because again, in relation to violence, we've seen this development that in the past, it was mainly used to resolve conflicts with rivals. But nowadays it's also used to start intimidating, attacking, law enforcement officials, but also journalists like Peter de Vries. So indeed, there is reason for concern, absolutely. But again, let's be a little bit careful by calling this um, um, a narco state. <clears throat> what we are doing now, in, and this is nothing newer, you see here on this slide, that we started this approach already a couple of years earlier. So the Dutch are aware, okay, we have to do something. And not only by using law enforcement tools, the classic ones, the police, the public prosecution department, now we try to come up with a more integrated approach, um, meaning that we also start using administrative tools. Um, we, have, we are using also the tools from the fiscal authorities, uh, the public-private partnerships that come from Winger, that we'll address more in detail later on. So it's, it's, it's a kind of, it's an approach using all kinds of interests instruments with all kinds of different players. In the, in the Netherlands, we call this approach nowadays, it's, it's a modern word, it's hard to translate. We are referring to undermining in Dutch, and some people call it subversive crime. I don't like the word as such, but the general idea is, of course, that criminals try to infiltrate in legitimate markets, and, it, and it's somehow undermining our rule of law as well in our democracy. So that's where the word is coming from. So we started this project in 2018. We we strengthened it, I would say. We didn't start it in 2018, already earlier like that. But then there was this, by the national government, they stimulated this approach with some extra project funding and a focus on drug-related crime. And the general idea was, okay, let's, let's not decide from the central government what they have to do with this money. They can come up with their own ideas. It's a bottom-up approach. So they called for, come up with proposals and we, have, we will have a look at it. And so 126 projects emerged and are being financed right now. And, but the minister said, okay, that is interesting that so many ideas exist in trying to contain crime, but we need scholars, academic scholars to monitor that and evaluate that, a process evaluation. And this is exactly what we are doing right now. So Maastricht University, together with Erasmus University Rotterdam, is following up on those projects and trying to learn from it. And we have two main questions here. What the experiences are, we are looking for good and bad experiences, bad practices, and also how people perceive whether it actually helps. Um, so we look at those, not all 126, of course, we made a selection and we are following up, monitoring 13 projects in more in detail. Uh, and we are trying to come up with learning experiences. What can help us? What is innovation? So we are looking at those kind of aspects in this project. Um, and I think this is the time to give my uh, colleagues the floor to discuss this a little bit more in detail. First of all, Roland, may I invite you to say a little bit more about, um, well, how this approach, this, this approach that was stimulated in 2018, if you look back, 
also from a more historical perspective, what do we see, what's new, what, what's maybe old. In, so please, Roland Mouland, again, I already introduced him. He's from Maastricht University, Associate Professor of Criminology. Please, Roland, you have the floor. Thank you, uh, Hans. First of all, good morning to everybody, uh, and thank you for joining. Uh, as Hans already said, my name is Roland Mouland. And um, since 2019, my colleagues and I from Maastricht University and Erasmus University uh, in Rotterdam, the Netherlands, have been involved in an extensive study uh, that monitors the developments in these projects that Hans just uh, talked about. And we actually recently published our first interim report that, that discloses some of the insights with regard to uh, how these projects are doing. Our research shows that the projects contribute to a greater awareness regarding the problem of drug-related organized crime among key stakeholders. And the projects have also led to an intensified effort to address this problem. As one interview said, and I quote, there has never been more energy devoted to this issue than now. In, ad in addition, the projects have also triggered an innovation impulse that increases the integrated nature of the approaches taken, while at the same time stimulating the development and use of new investigatory methods and techniques. In that regard, I think the movement against organized crime in the Netherlands has not only strengthened, but it has also become more progressive. Unfortunately, despite these positive developments, our findings also indicate that the movement faces a number of challenges that negatively affect the fight against organized drug-related crime. And during my brief presentation, and I will try to stick to 10 minutes because then we have a lot of time for discussion, but during this brief presentation, I want to reflect on three challenges that come to the fore and that are of a more persistent or structural nature and that we somehow cannot seem to get rid of in our fight against organized crime. The first challenge concerns how the field is organized or better, how it has become over-organized. In order to understand the persistent nature of this challenge, we need to go back in time a bit um, and in the 1990s, the Dutch authorities started to look into organized drug-related crime more intensively. And in its criminal investigations, the authorities developed an approach that was deemed controversial for various reasons. It actually uh, led to a parliamentary inquiry that looked into the investigative methods used um, in the Netherlands in the fight against organized crime and its control. In 1996, the final report of the Committee of Inquiry was made public, and in its report, the committee concluded that there was an investigatory crisis. In addition to problems concerning authority relations, defective legislation or lacking legislation, this crisis also included um, a malfunctioning of the, let's say, organized investigatory effort. In the report, they call this an organization crisis or an organizational crisis. And this was partly due to the large number of organizations that were involved in the approach taken at the time, while the coordination and cooperation among those organization or organizations was largely lacking. Now, 25 years later, and time has not stood still, we see that the field has become increasingly busy. It is busier than ever. And the financial injection that Hans just talked about, and which has led 
to, let's say, a flood of new projects has in fact resulted in, uh, in, 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 in the situation that an already overcrowded field is being overrun with new initiatives, platforms, and organizations. And this has led to an over-organization of the field, resulting in an overwhelming institutional complexity, while at the same time, there seems to be a lack of overarching coordination and direction. For instance, it is telling within the context of our research that actually nobody has been able to give us a comprehensive overview of what is being done, by whom, where, and how these projects and initiatives are related to each other. The danger here is that the actors involved don't have sufficient insight is into what is being done uh, elsewhere, which limits their ability to work together and also to learn from each other. And there is also a real danger that the so-called wheel is being reinvented at multiple places at the same time. In addition to the issue of over-organization, another reoccurring challenge is uh, capacity, the capacity that these organizations have at their disposal. And of course, capacity is, is not unique to this context. I think it is a cl classic bottleneck in tackling crime. Uh, and it is therefore no surprise that in the fight against organized crime, guaranteeing the necessary capacity is also a challenge. And for instance, in our research, we see that, for instance, many of the activities linked to the, linked to the project often have to be carried out in addition to already existing tasks. So it comes on top of uh, the work that actors and organizations are already doing. Um, more problematic is that we also see that even if the capacity within a certain project is guaranteed, challenges arise because of, let's say, the integrated execution of tasks, which often requires, uh, let's say, that you are dependent on the services of other actors and institutions, and that capacity might not be guaranteed. What is, however, particularly telling, uh, and what we see in our research, is that, let's say, um, the capacity problem not only encompasses uh, 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 an issue of number of people available, it is not simply a quantity issue, it is more a quality issue actually, because the main challenge seems to be attracting and retaining staff with the required skills and know-how. The innovative approaches that are being developed often demand a high level of expertise. For instance, in intelligence-led policing, the information position is crucial because it increases the understanding and visibility of the problems that need to be tackled. This requires often that huge quantities of data are being gathered and mined, um, that these are brought together and analyzed to generate near dynamic real-time images of, of, of these criminal phenomenon using complex models and techniques. Um, in that sense, I think on the technical side, huge strides are being made here. Um, but this also requires that we need to rely on ICT experts who can design data systems, on programmers who develop uh, algorithms for analysis, and analysts who know how to interpret the data and who know how to translate this in, let's say, intelligence products that can be used in the field. Um, and we see that recruiting such expertise is a real challenge. Moreover, often because of the temporary nature of the, of the project work, it is difficult to retain people once they have been hired. 
We also see that the turnover of staff is sometimes alarmingly high. We had projects where in three years, for instance, the project leaders changed three times. Um, and we also saw projects that uh, had difficulties in starting up because the required expertise could simply not be recruited. We see that in order to meet this challenge, organizations start to make use of, for instance, expensive external consultants. And we also see that organizations start to combat or compete with each other in recruiting the required personnel. And there, I think, is also a danger that organizations start to cannibalize on each other. A third challenge um, relates to how to work in an integrated fashion and how to secure what is learned by working in such a way. In the Netherlands, the realization has grown that it is necessary to zoom in on the hubs and nodes of the logistical process of criminal offenses, such as cocaine trafficking, uh, the production of uh, uh, and trade in synthetic drugs, or the organized cultivation of cannabis. And the idea is that these practices can be disrupted by erecting barriers against the criminal opportunity structures. The traditional way, in that sense, uh, that focuses on investigating the key persons within criminal organizations has been supplemented with new strategies and in interventions that aimed at reducing the possibilities of engaging in such criminal activities. And this has led to what we have called a programmatic or integrated approach to serious organized crime. In this approach, crime is tackled with the help of various partners, public and private, at the local, local, regional, national, and even international level. And in this, all parties jointly develop a working method. Despite several efforts throughout the recent years to streamline the activities of the various law enforcement players, uh, the concept of programmatic uh, integrated law enforcement does not seem to have matured fully in practice yet. This approach namely requires a broader connection and embedding. And one challenge that we see here uh, concerns the development of more structural relations between institutions and also that the integrated approach becomes, let's say, entrenched, becomes part and parcel of the institutional workflow. What we see, however, in current practice that projects often um, rely on uh, unique individuals with key knowledge and uh, a lot of enthusiasm and a particular drive. And this also makes projects or certain developments quite vulnerable because you can really relate them to, let's say, a few people in the field. Secondly, embedding um, and connecting is also related to the experiences and knowledge gained uh, and how such knowledge is secured and shared in organizations and across organizations who are involved. We see that much is learned, but the recording and sharing of what is learned of the acquired knowledge um, still remains a challenge. And much individual knowledge is gained, but it is rarely collectivized and really worked up to, let's say, the level of institutional knowledge. As one interview noted, and I quote, the challenge is how to prevent the expertise that has been built up from evaporating at the end of a project or a collaboration. 
So let me wrap up and briefly conclude. And then I think I stick to my, uh, my 10 minutes. We can see that the financial budget that also Hans referred to made available by the Dutch government has enabled a bottom-up development of numerous innovative projects that address drug-related organized crime. Not only has this strengthened the fight against organized crime and has, has, it has made this fight more progressive, but this approach has also created a greater sense of urgency, a higher level of involvement, and maybe even because of the bottom-up approach, also a higher level of ownership. However, in terms of governance, it remains a serious challenge to mold all of this in a co coherent shape. Furthermore, in the fight against organized crime, uh, this might have become more progressive, but recruiting and retaining qualified personnel remains a bottleneck to innovation and implementation. And lastly, I think one of the more urgent issues is also how to secure the best practices, because this requires permanent attention. How do you make sure that valuable uh, lessons learned are secured and shared among the relevant actors? So together, these issues, I think, still pose a threat to fully, re fully realizing the potential that the current developments have in fighting organized crime in the Netherlands. We have also communicated these insights back to the relevant stakeholders. And throughout the remainder of our research project, we actually uh, look how these challenges uh, will be tackled. So that is actually quite, uh, quite interesting and also something maybe to come back to uh, later on, maybe in next year's uh, conference. But this is it for now. Thank you for your uh, attention. Thank you very much, Roland. Um, if there is a question right now, a clarification question for Roland's presentation, again, we will come back more at the general discussion at the end of this session. So we have about 15 to 20 minutes for sharing things. I already saw some interesting questions coming in, by the way. So there were a couple of questions which we might address over there. And some of those questions have already been answered, I saw. Um, but is there a question right now for someone, if you raise your hand and maybe one of the people of the, of the, the secretariat can uh, unmute you and uh, that you can raise a question if necessary. But I don't see anything right now. If not, then I would suggest to continue with uh, Lisa Lot Bishop's presentation, um, Professor of Criminology at uh, Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Um, she will take you um, to Rotterdam, to the port of Rotterdam. Uh, uh, Lot and, and a team of researchers conducted research in the past on what's going on in the port of Rotterdam. It was a very interesting report published in 2019. She's updating the information, but not only looking at the phenomenon, but particularly at, okay, what are the possibilities to contain that the Port of Rotterdam is being abused for criminal purposes. Lieselot, the floor is yours. <clears throat> Thank you, Hans. Good morning or evening or night to all of you. Um, thanks. I will indeed take you through to Rotterdam. And um, Hans already said this. Um, what I do in, in, in how I approach this is I basically start from the six, rec six recommendations that um, Richard Staring, Robbie Rox, uh, and me actually gave in the report that we presented to the mayor of Rotterdam, the police, public prosecutor and customs back in May 2019 and actually basically see what has happened since. 
Um, so the fieldwork then was quite extensive, but in the meanwhile, based on the project also with Maastricht, we are still involved in Rotterdam. And actually they um, were also still involved in smaller scale projects and sometimes through just presenting something still based on our research, we also hear about what's going on. Um, so the question they asked us at the time was how do drug traffickers abuse or use the port infrastructure and how can the approach to counter this be improved? And um, our six recommendations are also basically three about the first part and three about the second part. So on the first three, um, those are the three recommendations, and then I'll just go over them, see what has been going on in practice. Of course, this is just a, a broad scope overview. I can't go into all of the details, but I'll illustrate a couple of the things that have been ongoing since. Um, so we said, uh, make sure to focus on vulnerable locations of vulnerable sectors. And I'll say something about that in a minute. Um, invest in technology and in people. So not just investing in, for instance, gates or um, biometric access passes, but make sure that you keep investing in people, not just in awareness raising, but also in building trust and caring for people in the port. And three, raise awareness as a government with the companies, because at the time of our research, there was quite a bit of um, quite a few companies realized they had a role to play, but not all of them were on board yet. I think in the meanwhile, that has changed, but I'll share something about that. So first illustration about that learning about the, basically the vulnerabilities of locations in the port or of, of um, transport lines, for instance. I wanna illustrate that based on a public private partnership um, of the Information Sharing Center, Port Safety and Security. And I put an S there because at the time of our research, there were two, one focused on container terminals and one on ferries towards the UK. But in the meanwhile, several others have been created, um, which was also actually an advice that we provided to extend that. It's also been extended to other ports, for instance, North Seaport um, is developing or it has actually has one in place as well. Um, and what is this is actually it was initiated by security officers on container terminals because they we're realizing they were running into similar issues and it would have been good for them to share that amongst each other. So with other container terminals, um, but they also wanted to some somehow have a platform to share what's going on with customs and seaport police in, of course, uh, an environment that has made sure that there's no issues with competition authority, for instance. Um, but the private sector in this had a leading role um, and it's a two way street in terms of information sharing, of course, from the side of customs and seaport police within the framework of what is possible, but it did allow for them to to know a bit more about what's going on. So that's one illustration and they're also interested and they've also involved us in that in in, in learning about um, what's going on with modus operandi what they learn about vulnerable locations. They've come up with things like a 10 point plan that every company in the port maybe should think about in, in view of seeing where their vulnerabilities might lie. So that's the first uh, element. Um, a second element was, that was a third recommendation, awareness raising. Actually, these are just some images of what has been going on actually in the last year. These campaigns have been um, yeah, promoted. It's as for those who don't speak Dutch, so the Rotterdam port as a secure port or as, an, as a port with integrity, because that's also part of the program. It's called Port of Integrity. Um, they focus on port employees, raising awareness with them as how they might have uh, vulnerabilities to be approached by organized crime. Because of course, the vulnerability for them is just in the access, is in the knowledge they have, the knowledge about the systems, the access they have to the port. But the awareness raising is also about companies. There's, for instance, a video um, that explains to companies how PIN codes can be abused by organized crime. And it really takes you through that and takes you through the steps that you need to take. So there's some awareness raising going on. Um, attached to that or, or, or similar to that is also in the M campaign um, where they focus on anonymous reporting 
the M campaign has been around and is around for more than just uh, crime in the port, but this has been specifically targeted for uh, port employees as well. But not all is good, of course. Um, the state of affairs, what can we see? Um, we see that there is ongoing learning about logistics process and the vulnerabilities to that. And that several of the actors that we speak to are also aware that things might change exactly because they put measures in place. Um, and one example, for instance, is the more recent one. Those of you who have been following the news have, might have seen this picture before, because it's actually a video as well, um, of the hotel containers, uh, where basically people are put in a container that is driven onto the terminal. They get out at night and then they get the drugs out and um, then leave the port somehow or sometimes, sometimes let themselves get arrested. Um, so they, there's ongoing learning about those uh, MOs. Um, there is, though, something that um, we have warned um, some people we talked to about is also displacement effects um, to other ports. Sometimes, of course, it's just a, a line like a fruit line that's that's moved to another port and also maybe the cocaine line might might move there. Um, but this displacement, um, we've also shared that it's important <coughs> to think about the displacement of if you have more and more physical security measures in place, it also puts more pressure on the people. So you need to care for the people in the port. And I think there's realization with that as well, but it's not easy to, to deal with that. How do you do that in a, in a good way? Some remaining blind spots, which would also be interesting for research to focus on, is the motivations of individuals involved. Those who do get corrupted, whether it's in government or in, uh, in port companies, and those cocaine collectors, the uithalers, as we say in Dutch, um, there's not that much known about them. Um, and the second part is the use of legal structures. Um, it's something we said based on the reports that we looked into, the police reports, there's not that much information about the underlying structures for this. On to the next three recommendations. Um, we said try and focus on systematic and sustainable use of measures already in place and enforcement of these measures. I'll come back to that, but basically this also means that a lot of what was in place at the time was project-based money, um, <coughs> which it is still to a certain extent today, but of course, um, as also Roland was explaining earlier, makes it hard to, you know, focus on a longer term and develop things um, sustainably. The fifth one was about sustainable use of information and making sure that you have enough information there to then afterwards maybe do an analysis um, based on several case files to, to learn about the global nature of criminal networks, maybe not, not global even, but even just the fact whether there is a network or not, what connections are between some of these um, groups or individuals and, and also what i said earlier um do we know anything about the legal structures they might have been using or abusing there was not that much information in our case files to to look at that um and the last part i'll i'll go into later on um but it's it's about um seeing as a, starting from the perspective of government um see what, what you're doing is this about forced support you force private actors to work with you or do you truly go into cooperation and incentivize their support um, and thinking about coming up to coming up with a solution, and that might be a continuum, um, but it does have an impact on, for instance, trust within a, a public-private partnership. State of affairs, well, probably no surprise, but there's ever-increasing seizures of cocaine just for 2021, and actually up until October, it was over 61 tons. So there's records all the time, whether that's a good thing or not, um, I'll leave in the middle. Um, we do see more focus on financial investigations. Um, Something we recommended as well, because you have um, you have the hit and run cargo team, 
that actually does um, shorter investigations, but there is now a team attached to that as well. Um, it's a multidisciplinary team um, and they focus on the financial side of things. So trying to look into those elements more broadly and hopefully getting to the financial uh, data underlying that. There's also a new cooperation agreement between police and customs on a national level. So that's not just Rotterdam. Within Rotterdam, the cooperation is, is very good as well. There's ongoing experiments with working together um, between those agencies, also with, for instance, the uh, Harbor Master's Office. Um, there's a new so-called uh, yeah, administrative order for incremental penalty payments. Google Translate helped me with that. Um, in Dutch, it's last onder dwangsam. Uh, but it's basically the mayor that can say um, if if you're caught again on a terminal, there will be a 2,500 euro well administrative order, a penalty payment, and it's up to 10,000 that's actually been applied several times in the meanwhile to um, drug collectors that have been caught in Rotterdam. And then the last one is very recently there was a change in the criminal code about unlawful presence um, on a terminal in the port. There used to be just a, a fine that was basically they often had it in their pockets is what police officers would say and just pay it right away. But now there's actually um, quite a big fine or, or uh, risk of imprisonment there. What else is going on? They're exploring private law options. Can we, for instance, use something like uh, pay the damage? Um, if a terminal activity has been stopped, that costs the terminal a lot of money. Can you somehow ask somebody to pay for that? Whether whoever you caught actually has the money to do that is another question, of course. Um, regarding the, the earlier thing I said about um, project-based money, there is some um, commitment now since May 2021 from the Ministry um, to invest in Rotterdam, 5 million for Rotterdam and some other main ports too, but mainly for Rotterdam in this case. And this will now basically allow for the implementation agenda um, to be executed. It will require some prioritization because it's not, um, well, the total of the money that was asked for. Um, and that's also something where there is a bit of, um, well, let's say we presented it in May 2019, the implementation agenda has been there for a while, so it takes a while to get to get this process going. We also see some emerging prevention initiatives in neighborhoods, but that's still um, <coughs> a bit limited and maybe also less on, on my radar at the moment, something we'll, we'll start looking into. <coughs> the private sector is on board. Um, in the meanwhile, they're actually basically worried for their staff about financial investments <coughs> and sorry about that um they're also starting to maybe get a bit annoyed with slow slow government and the last part um <coughs> there's actually experiments ongoing that we're also involved in this relates to one of the questions asked earlier um, about public-private partnerships in the port of rotterdam can we somehow learn from working with each other more intensively and then um, having of course some scientists on board that can take a look at that evaluate that um I think it's a good evolution and something we will be able to share about uh, something about later, but not at the moment. And I think my voice is giving out now, so I'll gladly pass on to Karen. Thank you very much, Lieselot. <clears throat> um, this was a good moment indeed to give the floor to, to Karen, but just before I saw a question coming in, especially related to this um, to this presentation, if uh, if you agree, I will keep that question until the end for the for the, for the for the, for the general discussion also to give Lieselot the opportunity yeah. to get a voice I've back. Recovered, but it's, I've recovered, but it's a long question, so I'll read it first indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's a very interesting question. It's related to displacement. I saw Anna, Anna's question coming in, which is, which is indeed a very relevant question. We'll come back to that at a later, a later stage. But you were building the bridge or already a little bit, Lieselot, to the presentation of Karen. 
because you ended with public-private partnerships. And indeed, this is one of the essential features, I would say, of this integrated approach. At least that's the ambition to include the private sector more in our in our strategies to contain organized crime. And Karen van Wingen, the professor of criminology at Rotterdam University, will tell you more about that. Please, Karen. Thank you, Hans, uh, and hi, everyone. So uh, indeed, as Hans uh, uh, ha has mentioned already, one of the aims of this, uh, this, this, this entire um, movement was to financially stimulate uh, a broad societal movement against serious and organized crime. Um, and that uh, obviously also involves um, including private actors, uh, Lisa Lot has mentioned that already, uh, and setting up uh, uh, numerous public-private partnerships uh, to tackle this issue. Um, and I, I don't think I say anything new uh, by saying that uh, although these are very promising and necessary uh, to tackle uh, the issues at hand, uh, setting up these partnerships is also extremely challenging. Um, and what I uh, will do is to uh, focus on um, on some of the challenges that we've encountered in our uh, evaluation and illustrate that uh, by means of one specific uh, project um, that we've um, that we've looked into um, in in uh, in the past few um, uh, few years. Um, so let's first focus on um, on these uh, these challenges from the literature. Let me. Okay. So. Um, in the, in the literature on collaborative governance, uh, we can distinguish roughly uh, three challenges that these partnerships uh, face. And I think these are not only limited to, to public-private partnerships, but also uh, we, we see these in public-public partnerships. Um, but I focus on the first uh, today. Uh, first, uh, what, what has been labeled or defined as substantive foci or definitional challenges. Um, so that 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 focuses on questions such as how do you define the problem at hand? Um, do different parties involved uh, define it in the same manner? And also what's the scope of your project? Um, and what we have seen in, in some of the projects that we've, um, we've evaluated, and I think Hans, I'm not sure if you've mentioned that in the beginning, but we've, uh, so the entire um, movement, uh, so to speak, uh, involved 126 projects. Um, and we, we look at the entire movement in the Netherlands, but we've, we, we do that through the observation in detail of 13 specific projects. And what we've seen, if you look at these, these, uh, these 13 projects, um, you see that um, sometimes they, they in, in these projects, different actors um, have different definitions uh, of the problem at hand. Um, so for instance, focusing on integrity rather than serious and organized crime um, or embed the project on a, under a different umbrella, under a different organizational structure that focuses more on integrity than on, on crime itself. Uh, and obviously that also means that you not always talk about the same things which um, can uh, inhibit uh, or prevent success, successful partnerships. So a second challenge um, that we've that, that you see in the literature is what what has been defined as collaborative process challenges. Um, so uh, those are challenges in the process of of collaborating. Um, uh, one uh, obvious challenge is, is obviously that public and private actors can have different interests. Um, 
Lieselot has, has mentioned that already a little bit, uh, but you see on the one hand, economic commercial interests from, uh, from, from private actors, especially commercial businesses versus um, public safety as a, um, uh, uh, an interest of, of public actors. Um, especially in COVID times, we've seen that that can be challenging um, in some of the projects we've observed private actors were also supposed to finance, co-finance uh, parts of the project, um, but uh, because of the economic challenges they faced, they couldn't participate uh, in that, what, which had consequences for, uh, for the collaboration within the project, or at least that had to be overcome. Um, Building and maintaining trust is, is um, uh, always a challenge in many of these partnerships. Um, it requires a lot of time and effort, um, and that is already difficult under normal circumstances. But we have observed that this was and still is extremely challenging in, in COVID times uh, because this, this had to happen online at the beginning of these projects uh, soon after um, uh, they started. COVID happened, so all these this trust building had to happen online. Um, another reason for that is that in the field of serious and organized crime, um, especially on the public side of things, uh, there's not a lot of continuity in, in personnel. Uh, so we see that people switch jobs rather easily. Um, and the, the projects that we're talking about were financed through uh, temporary money. So in some of these cases, project leaders or key personnel in this in the different projects switch jobs midterm. Uh, and as a consequence, that building and maintaining trust had to start over um, uh, all again. Um, and uh, what also falls under this, this collaborative process challenge is governance and leadership. Um, so we, we, we often, and also in our project, we distinguish between, um, on the one hand, um, participant governed networks. So uh, where all the participants involved in the network uh, have a leadership and governing role uh, versus a lead organization governed networks where one single or two uh, organizations are in the lead. Um, so because this is public money, we see that in most of the projects that we've observed, uh, these, they, they can be characterized as these lead organizations uh, governed networks. So where one or two public parties are in the lead. Um, and um, in, in some cases, there were already existing private collaborations ongoing. As, as Lisa Lott has discussed in the Port of Rotterdam, there was already a lot, a lot ongoing. Uh, there are other projects um, uh, where the same applies. What we have noticed is that when public organizations uh, start taking the lead, um, private organizations tend to fall back. Um, and there's a risk in that, that you lose commitment. Um, so governance and leadership is especially uh, challenging uh, when public and private partnerships uh, are, are involved. And then finally, um, uh, accountability challenges, um, uh, uh, which uh, includes uh, how do you define success and how do you communicate about the results? Uh, and also there, there are different, different wishes um, and different interests that, that play a role here. Um, uh, and that can also uh, impact both positively as well as negatively on the motivation of the, uh, the people involved. So let me illustrate uh, these challenges um, with one specific uh, project that we've observed, and that is um, the Serious Crime Task Force. Um, and this is um, um, 
a, a project um, set up as a pilot in 2019 uh, with uh, this money. It has now been um, structurally embedded as of this year in the so-called Fintel Alliance, um, uh, which is a public-private partnership between the um, uh, Financial Intelligence Unit um, and five major banks in the Netherlands. Uh, there are other public actors involved as well, uh, because uh, formally it is embedded uh, with the police and the financial intelligence unit. So th those are involved as well, uh, both uh, also the fiscal intelligence and investigation services involved, as well as the prosecution service. Um, but formally, the partnership involves the financial intelligence unit and the five major banks. Um, and this is similar to... Um, um, task forces in other countries. Uh, for instance, in Australia, um, we, we have Austrac, uh, which is also a partnership between public actors and banks, and in the UK, Jimlet. Uh, um, so these are similar um, um, uh, task forces. And they focus on uh, fighting corruption, money laundering, um, and extreme violence. Um, so um, the interesting thing about about the Serious Crime Task Force is that it was initiated in the course of uh, personal contacts between um, uh, executives uh, at one of the major banks uh, as well as uh, and the police. And they thought um, that it was a good idea to set this up and, and try to, well, gain support for that. Um, and then later on, it was uh, uh, submitted as a project uh, in this call for projects uh, and also financed um, uh, through that, but it started uh, really from the initiative of, of one of the banks uh, that through uh, personal contacts um, uh, uh, tried to involve also public actors. Um, so the idea here is that this is a bit different than in other countries that uh, the collaboration consists of three phases. Uh, it starts with, with the input phase, um, where specific subjects um, uh, are um, uh, included by either police or fiscal intelligence. And this is different from, from the setup in other countries because these are not uh, suspects um, as defined on their criminal procedural law, uh, but these are bycatch from criminal investigations. So no, no suspects yet, but um, uh, um, potentially interesting subjects that might be involved in crime. Um, then the throughput, throughput um, phase, where uh, which is a physical space where uh, banks uh, work together in exchanging and analyzing data on these specific subjects. Um, and then the output is uh, the normal AML uh, regulations where banks submit their unusual transaction reports to the financial intelligence units that then uh, can um, um, uh, uh, um, uh, develop these into um, uh, uh, suspicious transactions reports um, and then uh, work these up to uh, intelligence for police. Uh, and the basis of this collaboration is a legal agreement uh, within uh, the boundaries of the uh, anti-money laundering regulations as well as the GDPR and privacy rights. Um, so far, the collaboration has resulted in, in eight cases um, that they've worked on, um, 351 suspicious transactions reports and 11 intelligence reports, which is wider knowledge and expertise gained uh, at private as well as uh, public parties about um, the underlying uh, problems. Um, so let's uh, uh, look at the challenges um, as, as we've 
uh, seeing these in this uh, in this project. Um, so first, if you if we if we focus on the substantive definitional challenges, we've seen that um, there was a lot of discussion in the beginning uh, what the focus or the scope of the project uh, should actually be, um, and um, uh, there was mainly a discussion between uh, the public actors involved because the police uh, thought it was necessary to focus on individual subjects, whereas the fiscal intelligence wanted to focus on broader risks than on individual subjects. Um, and this um, had a, 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 a um, uh, this is still uh, sometimes ongoing, uh, this discussion, uh, but it also um, uh, had to do with the quality of uh, the input. So for a very long time, the input uh, phase, um, there, there, were, there were simply weren't a lot of cases to focus on because of this specific uh, scope to not focus on, on suspects, but on subjects. Um, also, the prosecution service uh, had uh, their concern is to, to think really think about is this a proportionate uh, collaboration to focus uh, to, to use these subjects in this um, in this this uh, serious crime task force and in some of these cases subjects were um, uh, um, uh, 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 proposed as input uh, for which the serious crime task force really isn't a proportionate measure so there wasn't really a lot of input uh, which then negatively uh, impacted on the motivation of those involved because everyone thought well we've set this up uh, this 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 interesting uh, collaboration. Well, where is our input? Uh, although everyone thought that there uh, was supposed to be a lot of uh, cases that they could work on. Um, then, if we look at the collaborative process challenges, uh, I think there are some obvious here. Um, so obviously, sometimes there are different interests. Uh, what played a role here in the beginning is the external context. Um, so the Netherlands has just been up for review uh, by the Financial Action Task Force. So that's the international global review of anti-money laundering efforts in the country. And in the beginning of this project, some of the public actors involved were concerned that in intensifying collaboration with uh, private actors might signal to the review panel that that was necessary. Uh, so that that might result in a negative evaluation from the FATF. Um, and obviously if you, don't speak about these uh, concerns uh, about these different interests, which they did in this case. Um, but then it, it it can impact on how you are willing um, to contribute to uh, the collaboration and also to work together. Um, another factor here uh, that um, uh, uh, required a lot of effort uh, and communication is is obviously trust. Um, the banks involved in this collaboration were also themselves under scrutiny uh, for AML violations. Uh, so the entire project started uh, in the aftermath of the ING anti-money laundering scandal in the Netherlands. Uh, but one of the other banks involved, ABN AMRO, has also recently been uh, fined for uh, um, money laundering violations. Um, so this continuously um, required effort, uh, communication, um, public actors sometimes noted that it was increasingly more difficult to account for the partnership uh, in the political arena because of these, uh, these violations. Um, so this, uh, this was very challenging for the, for the actors involved. And then finally also where here we saw it started uh, from the initiative of one of the major banks, uh, 
but then throughout the project, uh, public partners uh, 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 took, took over and, and, and became more in the lead, so to speak. Um, and one of the, in, in the final evaluation, so the, the project also had an internal evaluation and the final evaluation, some of the private actors involved said where this was, and I'm quoting, where, where it was initially a joint initiative, um, um, it, is more, it, it has become more of a party for government. Uh, and of course, we participate with, because we take our societal role, uh, but the feeling is different. So this also signals that there is an, a delicate balance uh, um, um, in, in also in governance and in, in leadership uh, in, in these projects. Um, then that also applies to accountability. Um, so uh, also here we, we saw that defining success, uh, we, we saw different interests there on the one hand, uh, the, the private parties who really wanted to define success as in cases solved and, and to show the success of, of the output phase, whereas the public actors more, focus more on, on the success of setting up the collaboration um, and showing the serious crime task force as a success, as a working process in itself. Um, and then finally, if you talk about communicating results, also there um, uh, we saw sometimes competing interests in terms of reputational interests from the financial industry. Um, uh, also, given the context and 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 their own uh, AML violations, and also the um, the wish or the desire to uh, communicate the togetherness of it, rather than um, than presenting this as a as a public success. Um, so how have they dealt with it? Uh, from the beginning on, um, a, a sounding board group uh, was set up with high-level executives uh, with executing power from all the organizations involved, so both public uh, as well as private actors. It meets once a month in which they rather openly discuss all the challenges at hand. Um, and they really put a lot of effort in creating an open atmosphere to discuss things. Um, um, and we've noticed that um, individuals who were involved from the start are still heavily invested in the project, uh, which also in, well, signals and characterizes the delicate balance that uh, the Serious Crime Task Force has to deal with. Um, and this is also shown in, 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 in this um, mind map. Uh, this is also from their internal evaluation. Um, and you see that the the uh, actors involved characterize the serious crime task force on the one hand as interesting, successful, promising, uh, but also complex, uh, bureaucratic, difficult at times, struggles in collaboration. Um, we have high expectations, but um, um, uh, it is sometimes chaotic. Uh, what is our added value? Um, we are underutilized. So this, is, this also shows that it is, it is promising, uh, yet challenging. Um, so to come to a conclusion, um, um, well, many of these public-private partnerships uh, sort of can be characterized as a web of knots uh, that need untying, uh, which requires a lot of time, money, efforts, willingness uh, to experiment also with approaches and allowing things not to work uh, out as planned. Um, and what we've also seen, uh, and, and Roland has said something about that already, that in the midst of, of current uh, serious organized crime threats, as well as temptations uh, that, that new um, anchor chat hacks offer to us, uh, we've observed a tendency 
uh, to invest more in monodisciplinary initiatives rather than um, than, than public-private partnerships. And um, well, I think our main conclusion is not to throw out the baby with the bathwater and still keep investing in, 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 in these type of partnerships, e even though they're incredibly challenging. That's it. Thanks. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Karen. Nice slide to end with. <clears throat> this complex, it, it reflects how complex these public-private partnerships are and the fight against organized crime in general. We have 15 minutes left. By mistake, I told you at the start of this uh, session that we had 90 minutes, but of course we have 75. So it's only 15 minutes left, but that's okay. We still have some time left for discussions. There were um, a number of questions raised throughout the sessions. Some of them have already been answered. But uh, if I may, I will take some of those back and let's try to address because I think we can address most of them. But one of the first ones that was already answered, I think was the questions by Tamara, Tamara Vlaic, um, who raised the question in relation to, um, she referred to a presentation of our Minister of Justice, the Dutch Minister of Justice last week, he said that the Netherlands is not a narco state because there are no exotic people in my position yet. And she's questioning what does such an argument say about how the government sees organized crime different from criminologists? That is an interesting question again, because indeed it reflects a metaphor that people always if they discuss organized crime. I would say that, um, that they use metaphors which always and the, our minister did it himself, uh, portraying organized crime as a kind of an external threat uh, uh, coming in in our immaculate society, taking over, and that even politicians are being substituted by those criminals who you can even recognize when you look at them. It's, 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 a simplify, it's simplifying the whole debate because, of course, and this is, I, I would say, that criminological research has learned us that those two worlds and of course, as a metaphor, it's always uh, it's, it's easy and, and simple to look at organized crime. That's something that is trying to infiltrate in our society. But we know from research that those two worlds, legitimate, illegitimate, the boundaries in between, they are blurring, of course. It's, if it was that easy that we could recognize it at first sight. And this shows that our minister himself um, is using this kind of, of easy metaphors too easily, like the one on the narco state that everybody tends to repeat all over again. Um, it's also our job, I would say, as criminologists to create a more nuanced picture, what organized crime actually is and how it looks like. And I must say that in doing this kind of research, we shouldn't complain as Dutch criminologists. We do have access to all kinds of interesting material. We work together with governments so they listen to us. But again, in the political debate, sometimes I would say our knowledge is not always taking into account and people tend to simplify things a little bit. But on the whole, I think it is interesting to look into, for instance, how criminologists are being consulted. Also in relation, if we look at all the projects, had 126 projects, and again, we haven't studied them all. But we have an overview and we see that in a number of those projects, there are criminologists involved, also advising. So I would say criminological research is being used. Yes, absolutely. But in the end, we have to, and this is also our role as not only to help, to assist, but also to look at, okay, 
let's look at it and try to create a nuanced picture and also to demystify sometimes the way people look at the Netherlands. And so let's try to, to, to come up with the facts and create a nuanced picture as possible. So this is also related to the second question, maybe very briefly, and then I give the floor to my colleagues, to, because it was related to Mexican organized crime. Now everybody is saying, okay, the Mexicans are coming in. Indeed, we have found situations where Mexican people were involved in especially crystal meth labs, which is indeed reason for concern. We should have a look at it. But let's not, it's not our research. Eh? So what Karen answered in her reaction was, we do not, it's not part of our research. But at the same time, I would say, let's, we need better research into this. So let's not immediately say the Mexicans are taking over, like we did in the past when people started saying the Italians are taking over, the Russians. This idea of an external threat coming in, it's too simple. It doesn't work that way. And it's not as is, as we do not have any indications yet that Mexican organized crime actually, indeed there are Mexicans, yes, but they work together with all with other nationalities, including Dutch criminals working in those labs. So how actually, actually how, what the roles look like in those networks, we, we do not know yet. We need better research in answering those questions. Maybe I saw some questions to in relation to Rotterdam, Lisa Lot. Well, actually, Hans, if you don't mind me interfering, I think it might be good to follow up with Tun's question because it relates to what you've just explained. Explained because Tun asks how we think uh, the Ministry of Justice and other state actors received the results of our study so far. So, okay. do you want to share something about that? Well, maybe one of one of you can do that because I do not want to do the talking okay. all the time. So. Karen, Lieselot, Roland, you, you want to say something? What is your impression? What they did with our research, our preliminary findings, our interim report so far? What is your so impression? I think in, well, I'll start and then the rest can, can, can add. I think overall in the projects, people are very interested. Um, not all. I mean, it, it varies a bit over projects to hear what we come up with in terms of feedback. And I think that also maybe well signifies another challenge that there's a need for feedback and also feedback we can't always provide. Um, there's really, um, they're, they're, yeah, so I, I, I think that they are taking up some of our um, things we've noticed. Um, on a broader level, there's also some interest in, you know, thinking along in, in how the future can be shaped, but uh, maybe Karen can say something about that in relation to the ministry. Uh, mine is, my experience is more about the projects that I think there's interest. Um, Karen? Orland, I know. Uh yeah, and I think one thing to, uh, uh, in addition to what Lisa Lott has been saying, so um, uh, the, the 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 minister himself he uh, commented on uh, uh, so he wrote a policy brief when when we published our interim report, and obviously he didn't write it himself, uh, but it was quite constructive indeed. That so 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 also picking up um, the the challenges that we've we've described and that Roland has already put forward. Um, uh, at least acknowledging these uh, and and also providing suggestions on how to to shape that uh, in future um, projects. Um, they're now so uh, um, I'm, I'm sure that many of you know that in um, uh, in September always the new um, uh, uh, financial budget for the next year in the Netherlands is being presented and. There was another, I think, 500 million. It is right uh, allocated to the fight uh, of serious organized crime. So the ministry is now involved in 
thinking about how to divide uh, and allocate that money. Um, and they're, they're at least uh, open um, to, uh, uh, to our suggestions uh, on how to tackle some of the issues that we've observed in, in our interim report uh, to ensure that, that in, in a new allocation of projects, uh, of, of money to these projects, that uh, you can maybe solve the issues that we've, that we've observed earlier. So I think they're rather open in, in thinking about constructive ways to move forward. Roland, do you have anything to add to this comment? Yeah. Um, in addition to what Lieselot and Karen have been saying, I do think you see a difference in the sense, let's say, how within the projects our information is being picked up and dealt with and the interest in it. I think that there is much more, how do you call it, uh, in intensity or, uh, or energy on it then uh, let's say the, 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 the higher managerial levels. That I think is what we, what we do see. Although, uh, but although, as Karen says, they are open to our feedback. Um, but on a project level, I think you simply notice more that it's very important for the projects themselves how they can tackle the particular challenges. Um, um, yeah. Okay, thank you. Ironically, by the way, when our report appeared in the summer, uh, it was a week before the killing of Peter de Vries. And one of our conclusions was be aware, it seems to be a little bit, and we were, uh, we were, our observations were related to the periods 2019, 2021. And we saw slowly a decline in the sense of urgency that in many places, okay, we dealt with things now. It's, so people became a little bit satisfied, lay, lay low, wasn't that so we warned actually the minister and the sad thing of course is that you always need a crisis to prioritize things again. The moment that Peter, Peter Edevries was shot, of course all the alarm bells started ringing again and um, it was hot and it was prioritized again. So we see this, this, this process of course happening. So it, uh, in that respect, our result, our, one of our first observations was already outdated after a week because the sense of urgency is actually absolutely back. But one of the things that we still need to do, and maybe it's also related to building a bridge towards, towards we have a couple of minutes left for addressing some other questions in relation to Rotterdam, is the international aspect. And generally speaking, and Roland already addressed this also, is that what we saw was, and this is striking, at least if you want to fight this kind of crime, that most projects, those 126, were nationally oriented, regionally oriented even. So the international dimension in many projects, and Rotterdam is one of the exceptions, of course, because it's by, by definition, it's an international um, uh, situation in the Rotterdam port. Uh, but overall, what struck us was we tend to look, and I see that we, I think, what, what this is maybe a problem in other countries as well, that when we start looking at this type of crime, that we start looking at our we are very nationally oriented and there are not that many international analysis. Okay, and we all know that it is transnational by nature. But maybe this is something also for you to address because one of the questions that Anna Sergi Rose, I saw, you know, was linked up to, okay, Rotterdam is doing a lot of things, Antwerp, we know there is a connection, huh? but maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that, Lisa Lot, Antwerp and Rotterdam, but it may well lead new developments Brexit, 
what, what do we know about displacement in this respect? Do we know anything about that or is it, is it hard to answer? Yes, the last part, it's partially hard to answer because it requires also a bit more data. We are looking into it, so it might be something for ongoing research. I know within the Port of Rotterdam, for instance, Seaport Police and others do keep an eye out on things that might be changing, also lines of trade are changing. Um, and what you write, Anna, I think, you know, relationship to Brexit it does have an, an influence. I mean, it has an influence, of course, on capacity for customs as, as just as a start, uh, but there's more to it. So, um, yeah, and there might be other smaller ships. I mean, that's something we've seen, for instance, some trade lines have shifted during the research um, we did in Rotterdam, actually from Rotterdam to Vlissingen. Um, I mean, that has implications too. It still ended up in Rotterdam somehow, but it was via another line. So there is... There are modus operandi that might change along with that, because if it's entered um, Ireland, uh, we would consider it a safe trade within the European Union, right? So it would have less checks in place in that regard. So it's important to keep keep those things in mind. I mean, the so-called switch method would still be uh, applicable there. Um, but it's something to, to continue to look into, and that will, as you said, it will keep moving. It will keep uh, getting displaced as well. Um, and then the other part that you asked about, Anna, is basically also, I'll, I'll interpret it in this way as also a, it relates to me to a question that some of the people we recently have been talking to and, and have actually been raising is, is are we doing the right thing? Um, because the issue of, for instance, capacity, Roland was referring to earlier on, they said, well, we know the capacity is, you know, we know what it is. And to a certain extent, it has increased over, over the past years, but it's also taken away from other focus. And um, I don't know if everybody knows this, but the funding is also, it has to be attached to drug crime somehow. So that means many other types of organized crime are not the focus because um, they wouldn't have gotten the funding. And so some of the people we've been talking to recently have also raised that. Are we doing the right thing? Is this what we should be focusing on? Not saying it's not important, but it might mean we have other blind spots um, as well. And that relates, of course, to what you're writing about, Anna. Um, actually, some of the people I talked to over the past few weeks shared some worries about, for instance, corporate crime and environmental crime being less on the radar, um, whether that's, you know, there's a causal relationship or something that I won't address. But there, there are some worries about that. And, and I think that's also an important message for, for the next few years to also make sure that you keep evaluating whether what you're doing is what you should be doing. Um, and whether maybe the priorities should change too, because that, that might have implications there. So that's how I've interpreted your last question. Um, but I'll, I'll, back to you, Hans, for, uh, well. <laughs> yeah, we have to, unfortunately, we have to finish because I see it's 10.45 and that is the end of the session. We have to, um, we promise that, so we will keep it, we will keep that promise. Um, so we cannot address the last questions in relation to the multi-interdisciplinary team that is just being established in the Netherlands. It's also not part of our research, so it was hard to address that question anyway. But if you're interested in those kind of issues, please be welcome to send us an email for clarification, for discussion. We are very open to it, the four of us, to, to discuss issues with you. I thank you all for joining it, for, the, for joining this session. And in particular, of course, my, co my colleagues, my, the co-panelists in this session. I hope you enjoyed it and it, it gave you food for thought. And again, if you're interested, please contact us and we are very, we are happy to do our insights and, and findings with you. Thank you very much. Have a nice day. Enjoy the conference and uh, see you next time.
Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.